Hello and welcome to the Energy Flux podcast. I'm your host, Seb Kennedy, founding editor of Energy Flux newsletter. If you haven't done so already, you should head on over to www.energyflux.news and sign up for email updates where you'll hear all about new upcoming shows on the podcast and you'll get a whole bunch of free content beside that. Now, tonight I'm going to talk through last week's deep dive on the Energy Flux newsletter and there's an extended preview of this article available to view on the Flux website under the headline Scraping the Barrel. This article is all about energy return on energy investment. I'm going to talk through what is it and why does it matter. So energy return on energy investment or EROI as it's known by its common acronym is a very simple theory that is observable in real world oil production data regarding the amount of energy we put into drilling an oil well or for that matter mining for coal and compare that to the amount of energy we get out at the other end, at the wellhead or the, the coal mine mouth. And from this, this information, we can extrapolate to make some quite alarming conclusions about the world's overall energy security situation. And it really has quite enormous implications for the energy transition and really every productive sector of the global economy. I wrote this story about EROI in the depth of this winter rally in global oil prices and and gas prices and and amid the the European winter energy crisis, um, uh, which has been a real shock to the system for a lot of people um, in, in the UK and Europe. Now, there there are a lot of factors influencing recent market events, and I'm not going to start making outlandish or hyperbolic claims about a looming doomsday scenario. But I, I couldn't help but wonder if the extreme tightness that we've been seeing in global energy supplies um, might just be giving us a taste of what's to come, according to EROI theory. And the the reason I wondered that was because I've been reading a bunch of new studies into the oil industry's diminishing energy returns. And these suggest that on a macro scale, we're slipping down a perilous energy cliff. And if these EROI models are to be believed, then simply producing more oil and gas might not be possible as time goes on. Or if it is possible, it would only make matters worse from a climate perspective. But before I get into all that, um, to give some colour and context to this theory, which is controversial and quite technical in parts, I'll start with a story from 120 years ago to give a bit of historical perspective. At the dawn of the 20th century, a one-armed American mechanic and lumber merchant by the name of Patilio Iggins, identified a hilltop location near Beaumont in Texas to drill an oil well. Having taught himself rudimentary geology, Higgins was convinced that Spindletop Hill, as the site was known, held vast amounts of oil. This chap persevered, despite being ridiculed by investors, 
and his efforts paid off in the most spectacular way imaginable. On the 10th of January 1901, in the exact spot identified by Higgins, a drilling derrick struck a high-pressure reservoir beneath Spindletop Hill. An intense oil eruption blew the six-ton drill pipe out of the ground and sent a 150-foot geyser spewing crude oil high into the air, coating the hill with horrible sludgy residue. And in that moment, America's oil production more than doubled. News of this dramatic event spread like wildfire, triggering the first Texas oil boom, a period that would later become known as the Gusher Age, after the wells that tended to gush uh, in that part of the world. Fast forward 120 years and oil gushes can be found only in the history books. Oil does not spring violently from the ground in any major oil producing province. Now, I've since learned that this is mostly a function of modern drilling techniques that prevent new wills from, from gushing. Um, but the, the point is really that the oil industry is on a global basis, also increasingly dealing with older fields with depleted reserves that don't spring out of the ground. And as fields mature and flow rates decline, then the oil must be coaxed up by pumping other liquids or gases down the borehole to create the reservoir pressure required to maintain commercial flows of the crude oil that they're trying to get out. This process requires energy. Over time, more energy is being expended to recover the same amount of crude oil. Every well is at its own stage on the decline curve, um, but on a global aggregate basis, the oil industry's energy return on energy investment is falling. The EROI of conventional fields peaked many years ago and is actually declining quite quickly now. Scientists have known about this for a long time, decades, and there's a whole field of study dedicated to furthering our understanding of EROI. In fact, early literature on this topic underpinned the, the peak oil theory, um, which emerged in the 1950s and captured popular imagination in the early 2000s with claims that global oil production would soon peak, plateau and gradually taper off. The conviction of peak oil proponents swelled with the oil price as Brent crude shot above $100 per barrel in 2008 and bumped around the triple-digit mark until 2011, then claims of gradual demise morphed into alarming warnings of impending cataclysm. The peak oil advocates underestimated, has to be said, the significance of unconventional oil resources such as shale, and this proved to be fateful to their cause. The American shale boom of the 2010s, which saw hydraulic fracturing unleash just gargantuan volumes of shale, oil and gas, really trashed the credibility of peak oil theory in the eyes of investors and politicians. And you could say that with echoes of the spindle top gusher, the US shale gale, as it became known, flooded oil markets and contributed to the precipitous 2014 oil price crash. This revived US claims to global energy dominance, re redrawing the energy map and recasting geopolitical power balances. And the view was that technical innovation and market forces had finally silenced the peak oil doom mongers. 
Um, or that's how it seemed at, at that time in history. Um, but the the shale boom might have ended the peak oil debate and it, and it pickled EROI in controversy because high oil prices had spurred innovation, which unlocked previously uneconomic reserves that put a lid on prices. Um, the market was seen to be working. And this view became a mainstay rebuttal to any any suggestions that global oil production might someday run into physical limits to growth. Um, investors in this sector gleaned comfort from the idea that the declining energy returns of shale, oil and gas could be offset by endless efficiency improvements and just more drilling. Uh, we saw capital pouring into the shale patch was unencumbered by concerns over Byzantine issues around the energy cost of fracturing tight rock formations to recover highly dispersed hydrocarbon molecules trapped in vast shale formations. The Wall Street philosophy became these wells will deliver double digit internal rates of return and I don't give a damn about life cycle analysis. And that mantra became shortened to what we now know as drill baby drill. Um, but the laws of physics are impervious to the bravado of Wall Street investment bankers. Um, unconventional fossil fuels have a lower energy return on investment than conventional ones, and they decline more quickly. There have been a lot of studies into this over the years, and while there, uh, there's a range of conclusions, they all point at the same overall message which is that very thing that unconventional fossil fuels have a lower energy return on investment than conventional ones and the drop-off is more sudden and this quick drop-off in shale well production rates partially explains why so many investors fingers were burnt in the shale boom they lost a lot of money on fracking because fracking it turns out has merely delayed the onset of terminal decline in upstream oil energy returns by compensating for the production plateau of conventional oils since the mid-2000s. So shale revolutionized the energy sector um, and it seemed to put to bed the whole peak oil thing. But the benefits of shale oil will be short-lived and they'll be hard to replicate. That's really the conclusion of other studies into this 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 area of knowledge um, and and that's really just the tip of the iceberg because as energy return dwindles then the oil industry will have to grow bigger and bigger to compensate for the growing amount of energy lost in the extraction and production process uh, and also of course to keep up with rising, rising global oil demand so in effect it will have to run faster and faster just to stay still with all of the attendant environmental impacts that this entails this phenomenon of producing more to get the same amount is known as energy cannibalism and it could pose an existential threat because the question is can humanity produce enough net energy that's energy after deducting the production and refining losses to sustain modern modern industrialized civilization which is very energy intensive so to define the phrase net energy Let's, if you think of gross energy as oil, gas or coal reserves that are in the ground prior to development or exploitation. And net energy is what's left after accounting for the energy cost of extracting it, refining it and delivering it to end consumers.
Now, EROI, energy return on investment, is the ratio between net and gross energy. So if a well produces 25 barrels of oil for each barrel of oil of oil equivalent energy spent drilling and pumping it, he has an EROI ratio of 25 to 1. And that ratio is actually fairly typical for oil production today. Um, as the ratio declines, then it gets closer to parity. And when it gets to parity, like 1 to 1 ratio, then um, the oil goes below 1 on 1, then um, the energy system becomes an energy sink because it's absorbing energy. You know, you, you put in a barrel of oil and you get half a barrel back. Um, it's only when it's more than one-on-one, -on -one, then the energy system can be deemed an energy source because you get more back than what you put in. Um, now, new, re new research analyzing global oil production data as far back as 1950 gives quite a startling view of declining fossil fuel energy returns over time. There was a study published in the scientific journal Applied Energy in 2021 that uses historic data to model energy return trends out to 2050. And the findings are amazing, frankly. Um, this paper was written by uh, three French researchers, um, plus a chap from the University of Lawrence in New York. And it finds that the amount of gross energy consumed by the oil in industry has ballooned from less than 5% in 1950 to 15.5% today. And it's expected to grow exponentially to reach 50% in 2050 on current trends. This implies a one and a half barrels produced for every barrel expended or an EROI ratio of just 1.5 to one, which is one and a half barrels back for every one barrel that you expend. Um, this study by the French researchers depicts the oil industry's net energy production peaking in 2024 at 415 petajoules per day, but gross production peaks 13 years later at 551 petajoules per day in 2034. So there's a whole pile of extra oil being produced between 2024 and 2034, but all of this extra output is essentially wasted, compensating for the sharp decline in EROI. That's the whole running faster to stay still analogy that I drew earlier. And you just have to imagine the absurdity of increasing the productive size of today's oil industry by one third over the next 13 years, just to extract the same amount of usable crude oil. And this is what's known as the energy trap, ramping up output of oil to offset the diminishing energy returns of the wells that are in production. The phrase, when you're in a hole, stop digging, springs to mind here, because producing more oil from aging wells or lower quality sources such as shale to compensate for diminishing energy returns drags the energy returns even lower. It's a vicious circle. And it's like feeding the energy cannibals these these energy cannibals who grow hungrier with every mouthful it's 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 a uh, um it, it's a futile exercise and uh you might be wondering about natural gas well the the energy returns on natural gas are not much better uh, another 2021 paper by those same french researchers 
tells us that the average energy requirement for gas production today is equivalent to 6.7% of the gross energy currently being recovered, and that this will increase exponentially to 23.7 by 2050. So the gas industry, according to this study, will consume on current trends almost a quarter of its own gross energy output by 2050 to keep producing. That sounds pretty bad, but you might be wondering how seriously should we take these claims? Is renewed academic interest in energy return studies merely a rebranding of peak oil's alarmism that proved to be so misplaced? Well, energy return projections do appear quite similar to the iconic bell curve used by peak oil advert advocates to claim erroneously, as it happened, that global crude production would peak by such and such a date. Um, I remember that peak oil theorists projected that regular oil production would peak around 2008, followed by all liquids, including unconventional oil, around 2010. So that patently didn't happen, um, mostly because of the onset of shale, as I described earlier. But what, what's the difference between this debunked peak oil theory and EROI theory. And to understand the difference, you, you have to look at it from a stock versus flow perspective. So peak oil refers to stock and energy returns relates to flow. The peak oil theorists claimed that crude oil stocks would essentially run out. And this proved to be divisive and ultimately wrong. Those French researchers, by contrast, who I cited earlier, and many others like them acknowledge that you know we clearly have too much fossil fuel stock to be able to respect climate change targets, emissions reductions target, targets, and the, the Paris Climate Accord. Um, so they, they they acknowledge that you know that we have a lot of oil. It's not that we're going to run out of oil, but the problem is that the flow of oil liquids, which will be needed to sustain the global economy during the energy transition might be becoming constrained from a net energy perspective. Um, and it's worth bearing in mind that these French researchers, they're not, they're not trying to predict the future. Um, they do advise that their models will probably not depict reality, but they're motivated to understand the impact of deteriorating energy returns on the energy transition and society at large. Um, another valid question is, are they unduly worried about this? Um, and that's, that's a good question because scientific literature, literature that, that I've seen and which seems to be widely accepted in the scientific community is that, uh, that there's like a minimum safe EROI ratio to sustain global industrialized economy. And that, that kind of safe zone lies somewhere between 7 to 1 and 11 to 1. Um, so, you know, somewhere between getting seven and 11 barrels out of the ground for every barrel that you expend. And like I said earlier, the sort of ballpark ratio of um, today's oil industry is about 25 or 30 to 1 for all fossil fuels. Um, so you might think, well, there's little cause for concern. We're at 25 or 30 to 1. We've got decades before we would sort of fall down to 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 to 1. Um, and that's true, but... It, a lot depends on where are you measuring the EROI ratio. So at what point along the value chain are you measuring the energy returns you're getting for the energy that you're expending? Um, 
because all the ratios cited so far really relate to energy returns at the primary energy stage. So that's oil and gas at the wellhead or coal at the mine mouth. And this standard, this is like a standard form of EROI. And, uh, and, and it's called like standard EROI or primary EROI because it relates to energy at the kind of primary level. But of course, crude oil must be transported, it must be refined, it must be processed and distributed to end users. And losses are incurred at every stage of that process. And, and also, of course, in the thermal combustion process at the consumer's end. So, you know, a car's internal combustion engine or a power plant will have a lot of losses. Um, and only a small fraction of the energy going into those systems comes out as usable energy on the other side. Uh, and EROI measured at this final point of use, the point at which the consumer is getting use out of it, is known as end-use EROI. So there are different kinds of EROI. And there's even a third subcategory, which measures a kind of extended version. And this includes the energy required to build the pipelines, the trucks, and the other infrastructure to get useful energy to consumers. And this is known as extended EROI. So in its most basic sense the energy return on energy investment is higher if you measure it in the upstream, so in the drilling and the mining, and lower in the downstream for the reason is for the losses that I just described. Um, and since usable energy is lost at every stage, then standard EROI is always going to be greater than end-use EROI, which is always greater than extended EROI. And the differences are actually huge. Uh, I read a 2019 study by researchers from the University of Leeds, and they concurred that you know common estimates for upstream standard EROI of fossil fuels is about 29 or 30 to 1, and that includes oil, gas, coal. Um, but it did find extremely low ratios at the end use stage, and, uh, and it actually found that the, the EROI at the end use stage fell by around 10% between 1995 and 2011 to just 6 to 1, and it's declining really quickly. And this is very worrying because um, the, the, the relationship between falling energy returns and the availability of net energy is non-linear. So to paint this, it's good to kind of imagine a graph that kind of, uh, it's like a, like a, a slope that begins a very kind of soft descent um, on uh, x-axis and y-axis. So you've got the kind of the, the, uh, over time, the, the the slope becomes ever steeper, ever steeper, and then it's and then it's kind of um, exponential the further you go along until you're really just kind of falling vertically down towards zero. Um, so if the energy return on energy investment falls from forty to one to twenty to one, then the amount of net energy that's available falls by two point five percent. But if the ratio moves from ten to one to five to one the amount of net energy available falls by 10%. And then from 5 to 1 to 2.5 to 1, it falls by, I think, 20%. And it only goes up and up and up until you're, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're falling very quickly off that cliff. That, the energy cliff, that's what it's called, the energy cliff. And, and the more you slide down it, then the greater the temptation is to increase production to compensate for this sort of, parasitic energy cannibalism 
that's implicit in just expending energy to get energy back again. But doing this would be absolutely disastrous from a climate perspective um, and maybe even impossible if large and easy to extract fossil energy reserves are hard to come by, which is what the literature that I've read seems to indicate. Um, now, here's a quote from one of the studies um, that the fossil fuel EROI at the final energy stage is closer to the net energy cliff than has been supposed at the primary energy stage. Our results suggest that we may already have entered this zone of highly non-linear change, where further modest declines in end-use EIOI ratios lead to increasingly rapid reductions in the net energy available to society. Uh, that's from the University of Leeds study from 2019. And it continues. We find it credible that declining EIOI ratios of fossil fuels will lead to constraints on the energy available to society in the not-so-distant future, and that these constraints might unfold in rapid and unexpected ways. So what this means is that we are, as a species, or maybe a civilization, rapidly galloping off the energy cliff that I described earlier. Um, in an energy system with a low energy return on energy investment, then um, more primary energy is needed to deliver the same amount of net energy to society. So you have this this kind of ballooning size of, of, um, of like land and infrastructure requirements to, to be kind of drilling more wells and getting more oil out the ground. And it's all just to kind of sustain civilization, the, the kind of the same, the same size. Um, what, what, what does this mean? Well, the, the stakes really couldn't be higher. Um, this, this matters because every part of the economy requires energy inputs. Um, the real economy is, is fundamentally a thermodynamic system. Um, so you have to think of it as energy inputs uh, and energy outputs, you know, to produce absolutely anything in the world today, whether it's a cardboard box or a pair of glasses or a laptop or keeping the lights on, of course, or a pair of curtains or um, anything, any material object requires energy inputs. Um, and um, so it, 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 if the energy you need to, um, to deliver those material goods has a kind of energy cost attached to it uh, that's only going up and up and up, then you can see that the, the the amount of value we can deliver from the economy is going down. Um, and if you think about the financial system, um, it's really an artificial overlay of paper claims to current and future energy resources. Um, it, it It's quite a mind-bender to think about this, but this is what one of the EROI theorists I've been reading discusses in in uh, in his paper um it's it's that uh, you know this, this this idea of of financial growth and that that you know kind of printing money is a way to to kind of create growth but it's 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 very artificial growth which i think is kind of a commonly accepted view now um you know put simply printing money doesn't generate energy it doesn't generate real value real growth cannot happen 
without access to cheap and abundant surplus energy. Um, and yet this is exactly where EROI theory says the world is heading to a world with less and less surplus energy. The argument over declining upstream fossil fuel energy returns is all but settled. But as the French researchers put it, there is little doubt that an all oil liquids peak will take place in the next 10 to 15 years. That's that's settled. You know, it's like people think, oh, peak theory, peak oil theory, that was debunked years ago. But um, actually, all of the scientific literature points to there being this this kind of categorical peak in oil production within the next 10 or 15 years. Um, but there, there is quite a lively academic debate over how to model the end use or the extended EROI of renewable energy sources, such as wind and solar, because these sources impose on the wider system the burden of balancing intermittent output with backup generation, overcapacity, grid reinforcements, redundancy, storage, etc. Um, and, uh, and that's a much more complex issue to understand. Um, so th this, this deep dive that I've been reading through today is the first in a series that I'm going to be coming back to. Um, I do these deep dives about once a month and um, uh, they, they're an opportunity to go, as you might imagine, much deeper into topics that, that deserve some kind of deeper analysis. Um, and, and this is definitely one of those topics. So um, I, I wrote an entire deep dive and all I managed to get around or get through was explaining the kind of basic concepts of EROI and why it matters um, then with regards to oil and gas uh, and coal. Uh, and that's what I've talked through today. But I'm going to be doing a lot more reading um, and talking to a lot more people uh, to try to understand the, um, the arguments around the energy returns of wind, of solar, of geothermal, of nuclear. You know, these are very, very different energy sources. Um, and, uh, and as I say, it's, it's, it's far from settled about uh, the question of, of uh, whether the energy returns of these, these, uh, these energy sources, like low carbon energy sources, are um, uh, higher or lower than what we're currently getting out of the kind of um, mainly fossil fuel-based energy system. Um, and, and this is really significant because, obviously, the energy transition, it's, um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it doesn't get talked about very much that, um, that, that you know, energy returns are an issue. It's, it's all about kind of peak oil supply, peak oil demand and emissions. Um, but really, uh, there's, there's, there's this kind of other um, underlying trend that's, that, that's, that's underway, which is that, well, we need to transition to something else because the energy returns on oil, gas and coal are diminishing because they are finite resources and the, the best reserves were obviously expended first because they were the easiest to find, the easiest to develop, the most cost effective to develop when oil prices are low. Um, and, uh, and so obviously we're kind of going deeper into, into deeper waters We're we're kind of fracturing shale rock that has, you know, a much more diffuse distribution of hydrocarbon molecules um, within the, the, the structure of the rock. Um, and we're, like, we're pumping um, uh, propants, which is kind of a mixture of liquid and 
chemicals and, and sand and all sorts um, to, 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 to fracture that rock and then um, uh, and then drawing the chemicals, the, the, the hydrocarbons back up with, um, in, in brine or in other fluid. Um, and all this stuff, it, it all requires energy. You know, it requires energy to, to pump in the propant. It requires energy to, to get the, the sand. And, and sometimes that sand gets mined from different parts of the world and shipped over to the, the shale fields to be then um, used to fracture the shale rock. And, and you can imagine the energy uh, expense of, of doing that. Um, it's, it's phenomenal. So it's not surprising that the energy returns are going down um, on uh, uh, as we go for these these kind of alternative shale resources. Uh, and of course, drilling offshore, you know, you need to have floating oil rigs. You need to have um, uh, crew being shipped out there. You know, you're you're operating in extremely harsh marine conditions. Uh, you you kind of the, the the drill rigs are. Uh, are, are floating and need to be much much longer going down into uh, uh, to deep into the seabed. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's all in all, it's a much more kind of expensive and energy intensive um, process. So yeah, the the energy returns are diminishing on on these conventional sources that we rely on to to keep the global economy ticking over, basically. Um, so we, we we have to transition. But there's this debate that uh, is the transition to renewables going to kind of improve the energy return on investment or is it going to accelerate our um, sort of impending um, drop off the energy cliff that I described earlier where suddenly you're producing more and more and more and more just to stay still and then (laughs) civilization implodes or uh, or the economy collapses or something. Um, And we don't know. Um, but uh, there, there is a lot of, of uh, scientific literature out there and I'm going to dig through it and I will come back in a few weeks with uh, a little bit more information about um, about what the, the data suggests and, and, uh, and what it all might mean from a kind of high-level macroeconomic um, civilizational perspective. Um, so I hope you enjoyed that and uh, yeah, tune in to the next podcast um, on Monday. I'm going to talk about hydrogen on Monday um, and also sign up for email updates from Energy Flux. Thanks for listening.